Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. I'm your host, Thomas Hale. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Anna Brow, Director of Energy Leadership at the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, Vice President of Communications at the U.S. Association of Energy Economics, Adjunct Lecturer in Energy Economics at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, and Nano Degree Lead in Digital and Circular Transformations at the Estonian Business School. Anna is a passionate energy economist wearing many hats. In the past, she worked as an energy economist at Tetra Tech and as a science and technology fellow at the U.S. Department of Energy, where she focused on projects that use big data to generate actionable insights for clean energy transitions. She holds a Ph.D. in economics and policy from the State University of New York in association with Syracuse University, where she was a Fulbright Scholar. Anna completed her postdoctoral training at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland and at the University of Maryland College Park. Thank you, Anna, for coming on the pod for coming on the podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'd like to start out with learning a little bit more about your current position or positions and what led you into the career path as an energy economist. How did your academic and professional background inform and help you get to where you are today? And how has your positions evolved over time, especially the last five years, as the energy transition debate takes center stage in U.S.? Thank you, Tom. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. Let me take you back about 15 years ago when I was in Germany, a graduate student, and with a great desire to improve our environment. I was environmentalist and a tree hugger first. And after that, I found energy as a topic that is pretty much in present and everyday situation I could think of. So 15 years ago, I was writing a thesis on NAFTA and how international trade, I investigated the question whether international trade improved or disadvantaged environmental quality in Mexico. And after that, I saw that energy is this multifaceted field that is a growth field. So it was really exciting times. Germany was installing solar panels, especially in the south, and there was a boom of wind energy installations in the north, and I decided to enter that field. So uh, solar was where it all started. Then my PhD was looking more into second-generation biomass, and my postdoc at the University of Maryland College Park and University of St. Gallen in Switzerland was on onshore and offshore wind development and permitting barriers that wind is facing, local opposition and nimbyism, and all sorts of red tape issues. So in that sense, that energy policy and energy economics took me around the world. I got to work with three different exciting technologies. And I'm still dating different sectors. This is how I think about myself. I'm a recovering academic. I do teach as an adjunct at Johns Hopkins University. 
but still I have dated government for about one year. I worked at the US DOE, then I worked for a consulting business for two and a half years. And now I'm uh, happily engaged to the NGO sector, working as a director of energy leadership, putting on the Sea Life Fellowship. Sea Life stands for Clean Energy Leadership Institute. It trains mid-career professionals, and I'm in charge of the overall fellowship experience. So I get to work with really wonderful alumni who are more than a thousand people at this point in time of the institute who are present in four different cities in the U.S. So we work in D.C., New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, plus online events. So I'm really great at converting time zones at this point in my life. It is pretty phenomenal in today's world where you have to get used to working with people from all over and having to convert those times. And so let's talk a little bit more about the organization's mission. You know, how does uh, the Clean Energy Leadership Institute develop these future leaders as you were? Um, You know, I know that you had mentioned with me you have an upcoming cohort or you're looking for new applications. So maybe give the elevator pitch, the mission, and kind of some of the work that the Institute's done. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm a graduate of this Institute myself. I graduated in 2018, so I get to wear both hats as a participant and now the coordinator of this fellowship. It's a fellowship that trains mid-career professionals with three to seven years plus of experience in clean energy sector or related sectors. We're welcoming transition candidates who want to get into clean energy And our main components are to build energy literacy. So we have weekly sessions on energy literacy that discuss energy markets, energy policies, new technologies, deep decarbonization opportunities. So this is what I enjoy doing the most. It's my bread and butter as an educator. We also have energy leadership curriculum that builds up our fellows as leaders throughout the fellowship and specifically training them in adaptive leadership. Plus, all of that thinking has also energy justice component as an overarching topic, meaning that we don't want to for energy transition to be a luxury good. We want that the benefits are equally distributed or fairly distributed between different parts of our society. So in this thinking, energy justice is a very important component. So in the sense, this is a three-legged stool of the fellowship. And once you graduate from the fellowship, you get to join more than a thousand alumni. It's a wonderful community. There is not a question that you don't drop in the chat and you don't get answered within 20 minutes. I've seen this happen multiple times. There are a lot of really, really smart, wonderful people who went through this program. And this year, we are accepting applications to in-person programs in D.C., New York, Chicago, and the San Francisco area, and our virtual cohorts will run in 2024. So fellowship applications are open. If you just Google the website of Clean Energy Leadership Institute, it's all online, and we are accepting 400 fellows this year. Wow, that's really exciting. 400 and getting back in person, that's even better. If someone was to join this institute, can you kind of give me like the itinerary or kind of what they would do while they're there? Absolutely. So I wanted to caveat this, that there will be in-person meetings, but a lot of educational meetings will also be online. 
fellows have previously come together in the offices and jointly watched presentations, had discussions. So I would say that the weekly meetings are mostly educational, while weekend and monthly meetings, they're definitely in person and they're more hangouts, community building opportunities. We have done a lot of things in the past, and a lot of this is driven by our alumni. This is where the leadership comes in. We have done 5K runs for clean energy to raise awareness. We have a running climate book club where we invite the authors of the books that just came out. For example, Tom Wyrick was recently with us discussing his book, and many other authors are also planned as guests. We have done ice skating for clean energy. So you name it, there is an activity that you can do as part of this fellowship experience. And a lot of it, as I mentioned, is driven by our alumni. We're an extremely small, lean team. We're only three people who work on the fellowship. So you can imagine that we're heavily leaning on our alumni. And I personally work with over 100 alumni right now with the selections. So it's pretty cool that our alumni get to choose the next generation of fellows rather than the staff coming in and saying you're in and you're out. No, I think that's really great. And I think that creates a great community of future leaders. So I want to chat a little bit more about energy policies and mining. So we know that a lot of these large scale projects and transitions are going to require high demand for raw commodities. Many of these commodities come from different nations that we may have competition with, or regions with extreme human and environmental security challenges. As these discussions take place in Washington, D.C., how do you and your colleagues working on broader energy policy and more of the kind of downstream technologies think about material limitations or challenges to implementing the proposals that are being put forth? You know, is material demand analysis and projections part of that decision-making that's going on in Washington, D.C., or do you see that if it's missing? Thank you for bringing up this important topic. And I must say that throughout my work, which again spans 15 years and several continents, I haven't seen material science, materials discussion, critical mineral discussions raise into prominence. This just happened in the last couple of years. And while we are achieving scale, this question will increase in its importance and prominence. So when you mentioned about energy policy and the way the sausage is made, I'm fairly skeptical that the political announcements are actually taking into account the science side of things. I do think that a lot of the political plans are done to basically appease some of the special interests. In that sense, I'm following this public choice school of thinking where everybody's maximizing their own utilities. And in the usual economic thinking, the all-knowing benevolent ruler is maximizing society's well-being. Well, I don't think this is what's happening in Washington. The politicians are maximizing their well-being by creating headlines that would allow them to be re-elected. Public officials and technocrats are maximizing their well-being by staying in their positions, meaning don't rock the boat. And obviously, there is a very intense lobbying going on from all parts of the energy spectrum. I will just give one example, and I wrote a paper about this. For example, the 30 gigawatt goal that has been announced by 2030 for offshore wind, to me, it seems it's as an inspirational goal. It would be lovely to achieve that, 
at the same time, looking at how quickly these projects are built, there is probably no way that this goal can be achieved, not only from the materials and the lack thereof perspective, but also from permitting perspective, getting the communities on board, getting through all the processes. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that I'm not sure that our energy policy includes all the scientific aspects and regulatory aspects as it should. And it sounds like a lot of this is positioning itself to say, okay, we have this target and it is up to the states. It's up to other actors how to follow through in this. In that sense, federal government can set a target that might be rather unrealistic to achieve, just inspirational. So with respect to other technologies such as solar, there has been a big push in thinking of how do we recycle materials and this cradle-to-grave design or cradle-to-cradle design that hasn't been part of the conversation before. So most of the solar panels do end up just in the landfills. They are not being recycled which stands in contrast to some of the initiatives that are already popping up in Europe, which show that if there is a central recycling spot, there's a city in France where a lot of the solar panels, used solar panels are being sent to, that you can recycle up to 80%, or sometimes I've seen higher numbers as well, of the materials, which is especially relevant with respect to critical minerals. And in the past year, this issue rose to prominence in the U.S. too. There have been inquiries by solar trade associations into this matter. So I see this as an incredibly important component of the energy transition because in the past we were only thinking about costs and scale and transmission and how electricity gets from point A to point B. And I would start thinking about once the scale is achieved, like this gigawatt scale that we're already witnessing, how we will make sure that it is all sustainably sourced. And if I put on my futurist hat for a second, it would be really amazing to see what kind of environmental impact the solar or do EVs have. For example, I do have solar panels on my rooftop and I'm fairly certain they were produced in China. I would love to know what is the environmental impact of these panels how they were produced, were there any labor standards that were followed. At this point, there is no way for me as an end consumer to track that. And I would love for someone to come up perhaps with a certification technology or some way to do that, such as if you're buying a recycled book that is published on recycled paper, you would know that, or recycled paper bag, and there is a stamp that says it's been reused, or it comes from sustainably sourced forest products. I would love to see something like that for solar panels and EVs to guarantee that we as end consumers who think that we're saving the planet, investing our hard-earned cash into this, that we are not harming the planet somewhere else. Oh, no, you bring up a lot of good points. And I was actually, I was thinking about it one time, could I buy a cell phone, let's say 20 years from now, and there'd be like a little ingredients list on the back. And you have kind of check marks of where it's been sourced. But there are some certification regimes that are out there. But I think that's going to be a space where there's going to be a lot of innovation in the future. But no, a lot of those points, I think, are really important. The discussions are going to get bigger and bigger. And people are going to have to think about 
where we're sourcing these materials for the future and putting in a life cycle analysis. I was actually interested after all the announcements as you were talking about, I wanted to write a little op-ed on, you know, where we're at after hearing these announcements for the last two years. And I was shocked when I went back to look at 2021's and 2020's statistics that as of 2023, and looking back, I guess, into 2022, we've actually went down in the United States on recycling. Recycling has decreased across multiple commodities. We're more import reliant than we were back in 2020 on metals. And so, you know, to hear all these announcements and to see that the numbers are actually going in the red, it's really interesting to see how all those dynamics play out. But critical minerals and these energy discussions, as you pointed out, are going to be essential and making sure that we don't try to build a future that's going to be as environmentally detrimental as other extractive sectors. Because I worry about that sometimes, that the speed that we're having to put out with these announcements, that there could be some environmental issues, especially social issues and indigenous communities that are going to come up because of our need to get these metals fast, fast, fast. Thank you so much, Anna, for coming on the podcast and having this exciting conversation about energy leadership. I want to remind everyone to check out the Clean Energy Leadership Institute and be sure to apply for their upcoming program before the deadline on March 15th. I will share this link in our marketing materials online, so please check it out. Anna, have a wonderful rest of your week, and I look forward to having more conversations with you in the future. Until next time, I'm your host, Thomas Hale, And thanks for joining us on another insightful discussion on a rock and a hard place. Thank you for joining us on another episode of a rock and a hard place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website, mineral choices for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out. We love hearing from you. So do get in touch. And until next time, keep on rocking.